For those who are given much, much is expected. If you're looking to have an impact, invest where the work's been proven to address the root problem. This season, we've explored how structural racism and discrimination have held back communities in America from the opportunity to thrive. We've shown many different ways that race plays a role in how our institutions and systems are structured and operate. And we've heard from leaders from across the country who are leading with racial equity in their communities. But their work needs to be supported. They can't do it alone. None of us can. From wealthy individuals to corporate foundations, philanthropy has long played a critical role in alleviating poverty. Yet all too often, well-meaning investments have been made in silos, treating the effects of poverty rather than the cause. Philanthropy can help maximize the impact of neighborhood revitalization, if it's willing to reorient. Welcome to This Is Community, a podcast series by purpose-built communities about breaking the cycle of poverty and creating vibrant communities where everyone has the opportunity to thrive. I'm Alexandra Wiggins, a community development advisor with purpose-built communities. In this final episode of season two, we hear from Mr. Warren Buffett, who sat down with CNBC's Becky Quick in 2017 at our annual conference in Omaha. He talked about how America's systems fundamentally misdirect money into the hands of too few to the detriment of the many. Mr. Buffett has been the chairman and CEO of Berkshire Hathaway and is the third wealthiest person in the world. He's pledged to donate 99% of his fortune to philanthropic causes over the course of his lifetime. In 2009, he founded the Giving Pledge with Bill Gates, calling on billionaires to give away at least half of their fortunes through philanthropy. Warren Buffett was one of the co-founders of Purpose Built Communities in 2009, along with Tom Cousins and Julian Robertson. Here now is Mr. Warren Buffett. Thank you very much for having us here today. Um, Warren, let's jump right into this. You are giving all of your Berkshire Hathaway shares away for charity, but it's not too often that you pinpoint a very specific charity with a very specific cause. Why purpose-built communities? How'd you get involved and why? Well, I got involved uh, because of the work of Tom Cousins in uh, a remarkable transformation of a neighborhood in Atlanta. Uh, he took uh, an area called East Lake and totally transformed it, changed the lives of people in it. It took him years and years and years to do, and I, I watched him or heard about him doing it, and Tom would talk to me about whether this idea would travel, and I was skeptical. I thought you needed a Tom Cousins, and there weren't any more Tom Cousins, to take it other places. But uh, uh, he convinced me that we should give it a try in a second place with the idea that we would then go like Johnny Appleseed or something uh, uh, to cities around the country. And I was skeptical, but you never want to underestimate Tom Cousins. So we, uh, uh, he uh, took the idea first to New Orleans, and he did manage to do this really amazing transformation, uh, giving kids a chance to really have something that was like equality of opportunity, which they never would have had a chance for before. He revitalized, he, he resurrected neighborhoods, and, 
And he created a model now, which I think is up to 18 today, and it's, it's gained enormous momentum as it went along. So, so Tom uh, proved me wrong a couple of times. He proved me wrong on East Lake to start with, and then on the fact that the idea would travel, and uh, uh, there's nobody I admire more than, than him, and I think uh, you know, that his, his monument, his testament, is purpose-built communities. I'm delighted to participate with him, and I should say that Julian Robertson also participates as well. So there's a, uh, Julian feels the same way about him, about Tom and what he's accomplished that I do. It's, it's very interesting because the idea is one that's very similar to what you talk about a lot of times, about trying to make sure that everybody has an equal opportunity that it gets no. across. Why, why with purpose-built communities? What, what is it you think about this idea that is able to translate? Yeah, it's an, it's an empty promise, equality of opportunity. If, 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 if you live in a place that's crime-ridden and all you know from the moment you grow up is basically survival and, and you have the wrong models around you. And, and Eastlake, 13% of the people that were employed, not unemployed, but 13% employed, there hadn't been a building permit issued in, in 30 years. Uh, the fifth graders, 5% five, five were reading at, at grade level. I mean, it was, it was just a, it was a disaster. and. Uh, uh, in a period of not too many years, he faced resistance at first, as people always do when they come along with a great idea. Uh, but he has changed totally, revitalized, there's full employment, there's, there's a mixture of incomes, there's a mixture of races, there, the, the school scores in the, in the, in the top 10 in that area, uh, normally, if you look around the country, you'll see where there's lots of free school lunches or partially free, that the, 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 the scholastic achievement is, is, is poor. I mean, there's a correlation. Uh, not true but, uh, in East Lake. So I, I've watched this, you know, basically, I've, I've, I've seen a community created and, and uh, uh, and then the question is, can you do it elsewhere? And we're working on it right now in Omaha. But the real test was New Orleans, in a sense. I mean, it, you have to bring the community into it. It doesn't work if you go in and try and do it all for them. I mean, you have to get local leaders uh, involved. But the, the truth is, it's, it's, it's succeeding, and it's, it, it, it's spreading, and, and there will be kids that would otherwise really not have a chance when you get right down to it, uh, virtually not have a chance. And, and they're, they're going to get a good education and they're going to see good role models around them and they're going to, they're going to, uh, they're going to have a kind of life that essentially my kids didn't. You know, I was having some conversations at the lunch table about what the essential ingredients might be for, for why these things work. You're talking about starting with a clean slate. Yeah. You, you can't build the typical um, low-income housing that's been no, put we, there No, we tried housing authorities in this country. Mm -hmm. The one where the purpose-built operation we're building here in Omaha is on old housing authority properties. That was that, raised. Yeah, the, the, the land, I mean, the, 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 we, yeah. it's all cleared. In fact, that happened seven or eight years ago. It was just a failure. Mm -hmm. uh, no, it, it, 
That model did not work, and this model works. And when you get a model that works, you want to pound the hell out of it. <laughs> <laughs> what is it that works about the model? Is it that you are dealing with people of every income level, so it's Absolutely. not a segregated situation? Absolutely. Um, you're, you're, living, you're living with people that there's a diversity of race, there's a diversity of income, there's subsidized housing, there's market rate housing. It, uh, it's first class, though. I mean, it, it, it does not get stigmatized into something where you start getting the wrong sort of, uh, of kind of self-destructive behavior going on. And, and it really takes a holistic solution to it. And, and Tom learned this. I mean, you know, he didn't, he didn't go back and study social science or something and get a degree. And he just went out to an area. It's, interestingly enough, Eastlake is, was Bobby Jones's home course, uh, and, and so it had this history, but it had just, it, well, without a building permit in 30 years, you can imagine what it was like. Uh, 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 so he really, he proved it in sort of the toughest of situations, and he always said to me, if we can do it in East Lake, we can do it elsewhere, and I said, yeah, but we don't have Tom Cousins elsewhere, and he said, the, the idea, you know, it's the idea, it's not me, but it's, it's him to a big degree, but nevertheless, it, it, it has really caught on in the last couple of years. Another one of the secret ingredients is the idea of education, that you have to fix education, and if there's a good school system there, that that will draw people. You can eventually build the homes up around it, but you can't do the opposite. Yeah. Would you kids buy into are, that? Kids are living in school you know, many hours a day, and, and uh, uh, you, know, you become, to a great degree, you're learning from your surroundings all the time. And if, if all you're learning is survival, you've got a tough time in life. And on the other hand, if you have uh, good teachers, higher aspirations, neighbors that are succeeding, people that are going off to work every day, you know, whatever it may be, you, you see the world through different eyes. And those eyes that you see the world through in the first five or ten years are, uh, are a very big part of, of how you're going to live your life. Purpose-built communities has identified, I think, 825 um, urban areas, urban neighborhoods that are what they call highly distressed. Um, they also estimate that I think it's $200 billion it would take to start these projects up in every one of these communities. So I figure that you and Bill Gates could kind of take that on yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> And being, being a naturally polite guy, I'll insist that Bill go first. <laughs> I mean, when you look at it, that's a relatively small amount of money. Like, uh, how, is, how, as you mentioned, this is in 18 towns, I think 19 communities in those 18 towns at this point. How do you see this kind of steamrolling from here, or do you see it happening? Well, it, it has really gained momentum. And uh, Forbes 400 last year had $2.4 trillion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that happens to be, be 12 times 200 billion. Uh, so we just get one twelfth of that. We're done. Uh, it'll be higher this year than 2.4 trillion too. People like to fund successful ideas. And, uh, it, 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 at our giving pledge, we have a number of the Forbes 400 that belong. And uh, they're used in the business they're used to playing hard on successful ideas, and the, and and uh, 
that carries over to philanthropy to quite a degree with many of them. I mean, they, when they see a successful model, whether it's in medicine or education or you, you name it, uh, you get money on board to some degree. And, and purpose-built, we haven't really used it that much because we've got to raise the money in the individual communities. But, but purpose-built is a, is a far easier sell now than it was when we were working on the first one outside of, outside of Atlanta. It, it's, we can take them around and show it to them. <laughs> and, and, and we can have them talk to the local people, whether it's in, in Indianapolis or you know, maybe Omaha at some point or New Orleans. And they can, they can hear it you know, from people who've had first degree experience. So it's, it's a lot easier to sell a known product. I, I, it's accelerating, Becky. It, it, it sounds very um, like a very optimistic potential outcome for these things. What, what's been the biggest hurdle around along the way? Do you think? What's, what's the biggest one? What's been the biggest hurdle along the way? What's um, what's been maybe an unexpected challenge? You well, it depends learn? on what point in time you pick. I mean, the, right. the, the the skepticism. Well, I, the, one of the skepticisms that you run into uh, somewhat now, but but was a big one was with uh, Tom is you're going into a neighborhood and they're suspicious of you. I mean, everybody that's come along and promised them something for 50 years has ended up doing something different or trying to take advantage of them. So there's an enormous suspicion of some do-gooder coming along and what will happen. So that diminishes as we've had more projects, but that was a huge hurdle for, for uh, uh, Tom. And uh, I would say that in every community you'll have some naysayers, and they may be uh, local leaders. They may be even better off with the old system than than the newer system. So that's that's a problem. Uh, that can be a problem. And and you've got to work with the public school system. That and you know that's a political animal often to some degree. Uh, so you have to learn with a to work with a really wide variety of constituencies. You got to get good pieces of land too. I mean it takes dozens and dozens and dozens of acres to, to go to the scale you should have. But uh, once you prove it can be done, you know, it, it, somebody will say, well, if Omaha can do it, we could do it. You know? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a lot easier as you go along. I, I guess the other issue is it's not an overnight success. No. This is something that takes some time. It's, it's not an overnight success, but you're, you're, you're taking what is certain failure, and, and now, again, you can show them examples. I mean, it, if, if, if you would go to East Lake, you'd be blown away with what's there. And, and uh, uh, so you do have actual examples to, to, to show now. But no, it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, you know, I thought, well, Meadows is right here. I mean, he, he's been working a long time on this, and he's not done yet. I mean, we're just, we just, uh, we've got 102 units available to lease up now in these in, lease at 75 north in Omaha yeah, yeah. Oh, they'll keep coming but uh, but it, but there's nothing there except a piece of land to start with and 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 uh, we've gotten great cooperation from the Omaha public school system so Howard Kennedy school is going to be revitalized in a huge way but those things do not happen overnight they happen a lot faster now though than they used to is it the type of situation where it's easier to sell these projects and easier to get local cooperation in flush economic times, or is it easier after a crisis, like the financial crisis that we went through? How, how would you? Yeah, I, I think it's easier because we've got a product to show. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, diff, it's difficult to sell a dream mm -hmm. when 
nobody's seen it, you know. I mean, and 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 when you when it, when you've actually, the dream is there. The kids are going to school and they're learning and they're learning at grade level, whereas formerly they were all falling behind and 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 they've got models and everybody goes off to work in the morning and that it's just you know that it isn't a dream anymore. Right. And it's the type of thing that you experienced growing up in Omaha, going to public schools, that your kids experienced growing up in Omaha. Yeah, I think schools. Omaha's been a wonderful place for my kids to grow up. And, and uh, uh, my grandfather, my great-grandfather started the grocery store here in 1869, two years after it became a state. But every single Buffett, down to my now great-grandchildren, has gone to public school in Omaha. Now, you can't do that unless you've got a good public school system. Nobody's going to throw pebbles into the into the ocean, and if it's an ocean of despair, and the pebbles are your children. Uh, but we've had a, a, a good public school system, and so my three kids went off to public school and rode the bus together, and, and now my grand, well, my great-grandchildren do it. Uh, but, uh, a little luck, maybe my great-great-grandchildren will do it. I need a lot of luck, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let, let's talk about some of the issues of the day. Um, earlier this morning, I got the chance to talk to you about tax reform and the potential for a tax bill, which you called a tax cut, not a tax reform bill. Um, but just looking from the perspective of the tax code, are there things that could or should be done to help out the idea of purpose-built communities or to help people um, on the lower rungs of the economic scale? Well, definitely. I mean, the idea that I was born in 1930. And the country wasn't in terrible shape then, got in terrible shape a few years later for a while. But, but 1930, uh, well, the Dow Jones, uh, which had hit a high of 381, the Dow Jones were two, was 251 on the day I was born. I mean, it was the first thing they told me when I was born. I was, <laughs> <laughs> twisted my personality from that on. And, <laughs> they, uh, uh, since that time, in the United States, the real, no inflation factor here at all, the real GDP per capita has gone up six for one. We now have 59,000 per person, not per family, per person of GDP in this, in this country. If you had told my parents that day I was born in 1930, that the country would experience a six for one increase per person in real stuff, and actually better stuff as we've gone along, they would not have thought that millions and millions and millions of people would live in poverty and, and not really have a chance. I mean, it, the American dream has succeeded in aggregate. We produce undreamed of amounts of goods, quality of goods, everything in terms of total output. We have failed, in my view, uh, to create the equality of opportunity and, and really the minimum level. Any, anybody who works 40 hours a week, in my view, and has a few children, ought to be able to do, have a decent life with one person working. If they want to have two, that's fine too, and then it would be even better. But it just, it hasn't worked. Too many people have been left behind. And, and that trend will accelerate absent government doing something about it. I mean, the, 
increased specialization of labor, the thing that enables the best, the best welterweight fighter in the world to make 50 or 100 million dollars maybe in one fight, uh, but relegates number 30 to the same kind of nothing living that existed before. I mean, television, all these things just complicated, more complicated uh, uh, types of output as compared to just farming, which was what we did a couple hundred years ago. It means that the, it's terrific for output, but it means the rewards get more and more specialized uh, toward the top. And that has to be solved by government policy. And we do it to a degree with things like the earned income tax credit and we have social security. I mean, we have gone in the right direction, but much too slowly in my viewpoint. We've gone so much faster in terms of having the market system turn out tremendous quantities of things that people want. And we have not thought enough about the fact that the 325 million Americans, if they're willing to work, uh, should have a decent living. And uh, uh, even if their skills don't perfectly match a market system. If I lived in a society that, where the whole market system revolved around, say, football or something like that, you know, I could take, I could have eight hours of classes a day in, in football, you know, throwing one, kicking one. You know, I could practice at night and everything, and I wouldn't make the minimum wage. You know, I mean, I just, <laughs> it's just, I don't fit into that market system. I fit into a market system where you shove money around and, and, and figure out what things are worth, and that's a skill that pays off like crazy in a market system. And it pays off like crazy in a market system, you know, if, the, if your adenoids are in the right place or something and, you know, you could warble on television and get enormous amounts for, and, you know, but being number 50 in that or number 200 doesn't pay off worth the darn. So we need to do something to make sure that $59,000 of GDP per capita, which should be nirvana for the country is, is not, is not nirvana for the few or super nirvana and where people get left behind because they don't, they don't perfectly fit something that the market pays off on tremendously. And uh, uh, I, think, I think we will keep moving in that direction with some big hiccups from time to time. Uh, but that is lagged behind our ability to just turn out more and more stuff. Most people would listen to what you just said and say, okay, if if that's the problem, the answer would be raising the minimum wage. But that's not something that you've necessarily think, agreed with. I Why think is it's that? better. Well, if we raise the minimum wage mm -hmm. to $30 an hour, you know, okay. just pick a figure. And it, it, it does, it just means that a market system will say a lot of people aren't worth 30 bucks an hour, or maybe it'll say they were not worth 15, or they're not even worth seven, you know, and a quarter. Uh, you do not want the market system totally to determine whether you have a decent life in an abundant society. If you had seven Just an interpretation. You, you mean that if, if we raise the minimum wage to 15, the, 20, 30 dollars an hour- The minimum wage doesn't mean anything if you don't have a job. Right, that the job creation will shut down, that people will lose their jobs Ab as a result. Absolutely, yeah. And, and you may have, Somebody in the room, we probably won't have seven or eight kids, but, but a family, a rich family can have seven or eight kids. And if they got a very good business, they, they may pick out the one that has the most business talent to be in that. And if they've got the one that wants to be a writer, doesn't have to pay well, but they don't mark that kid down to the market system in, in terms of how they handle finances within the family. But, uh, you know, the market system enables us to 
you know, have people defending us for peanuts, you know, basically. I mean, it, they're just, it doesn't pay a lot to be a soldier, even if you're working at 120 degrees with a pack on your back and all of that sort of thing. And you can make a hundred times that if you can arbitrage bonds or something in New York, just because that's where the money is. You know, uh, We've got the aggregate resources to take care of everybody. And I, I, so you don't want the market system to determine what people that are least fitted to the market system make. You want to have an earned income tax credit. You may want to have actual grants. There can be a lot of things you can do. That's what I would say. Instead of raising minimum wage, you think the answer is to expand the earned income tax credit? Yeah, and, and, and there are people exploring this idea of a minimum. Just I forget, the, they've got a term for it that they're using that's become popular in economic circles in the last year or two. It's a basic income or something. Oh, the life income or the yeah, basic exactly. life income but or whatever. Yeah. I, I think the earned income tax credit makes lots of sense, but we're spending $60 billion on it a year. And... Uh, you know, just in this, we're going to wipe out 25 billion a year of receipts if we knock out the estate tax. You know, which uh, is peanuts. You know, to anybody that's in, involved in a large estate. But uh, nevertheless, five. There are 2.6 million people die a year in the United States, and there's 5,000 estate tax returns filed. I mean, it only falls on the rich, and yet. There's lobbyists. There's plenty of lobbyists working to knock it out. So As is I, proposed in the tax legislation that's being crafted right now. Yeah, the, I would, the I would, in, I would increase it. I would increase it, and I would. You would I increase would. the estate tax. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're going to get the money from somebody. If you look at the last 50 years, the U.S. tax receipts, federal tax receipts, have been between roughly 16 percent and maybe 21 percent. Uh, and they're 17% roughly now, uh, uh, 17. And they'll be a little less, they'll be a fair amount less if this tax bill goes through. So we are on kind of the low end of where we're getting it. Interestingly enough, the one item that's gone down the most as a percentage uh, of federal receipts is corporate taxes. Uh, you know, and people tell us we're, you know, it's terrible what's happening and we're not competitive and all that sort of thing because of our tax system. American corporations are doing pretty darn well. At, uh, uh, the, uh, we're going to get 18, 19%. We can actually take a deficit of about 2% of GDP, between 2 and 3%. We can take that deficit, and the amount of the national debt as a percentage of GDP will not go up. So, it's, you know, Berkshire can borrow way more money now than it could 40 years ago because it has more earning power. The United States has more earning power, at, uh, way more earning power. And we can take an increasing amount of national debt, but we don't want it to keep increasing as a percentage of GDP. We can have a deficit of 2 to 3% of GDP, and it will remain constant. So I am not afraid of deficits. I'm a, I am afraid of if they run wild over a period of time. Uh, but we can handle our present deficits about 700 million uh, billion on, on close to 3 billion. So we're three and a half percent now or something like that. Uh, that's on the high side. It's going to be a lot higher if the, the tax, tax bill, uh, bill passes. You mentioned corporations and the corporate tax, which the proposal uh, right now, although we don't know all the details, would take corporate taxes from a 35% base rate to 20%. You also mentioned that right now it's a relatively low portion of the overall tax revenue that we take in as the nation. I think it's 10 to 11%. Well, right? yeah, the corporate taxes are now a little over two and a fraction percent of, of GDP. Mm -hmm. In 1960, they were 4%. Uh, 
Duh. But it makes up a, about, ten, about one tenth of the total amount of dollars that we bring in every year. Is that right? That well, we're taking, we take in three and then, yeah, half, half trillion and that, uh, yeah, that's pretty close. He can do it in his head. <laughs> <laughs> I have to look this stuff up. Um, so if we do cut that corporate tax bill, and again, the argument has been made again and again from anywhere in the business community that you need to cut that corporate tax bill so that you can create more jobs and that corporations aren't unfairly penalized versus uh, corporations that are based in other countries. Yeah. All I can say is that American business is doing fabulous. You know, the Dow Jones in 1942 in the spring when I bought my first stock mm -hmm. was at roughly 100. You know, it's 22,000 now or plus. Uh, so something good has happened during that period. <laughs> it was, you know, it, in the century, in the 20th century, it went from 66 to 11,400, almost 200 for one. I said the other day that in 100, in 100 years, it's likely the Dow is likely to be at a million, and that's not doesn't require any heroic assumptions. That means we've done we will have done worse than we have done in the previous hundred years. So, American business, that's what it reflects. I mean, American business does extremely well in terms of return on tangible assets. I don't know of a capital project of size in the United States that has not been funded, that, that has attractive prospects. I mean, we'd love to fund it at Berkshire. I mean, our, that's our problem looking for it. Uh, there is no, there's no shortage of capital in the United States. I'll, I'll take some of the capital. I'd drive any friends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, incidentally, this isn't Warren Buffett talking, this is his evil twin, so don't, don't get mad at him. <laughs> All right, what you said the other day about the Dow hitting a million, in a hundred years, I know a lot of people thought that was flip. You just pointed out that it's not heroic math; that it would it would actually be lower annualized growth returns over the next hundred years than we've had over the last hundred yeah. years. So a lot of people wondered: Are you pessimistic about the next hundred years, or were you just kind of? Well, <laughs> I guess it'd be a little hard to expect a million and be pessimistic at the same time. <laughs> well, it's it's growth return; it's an annualized oh. growth of three point eight seven percent versus the five point eight percent or something that's happened since the yeah. last hundred years. Well. I so think, is it going I think to be harder? off this base, it's, it will be hard to have as much progress percentage-wise as we had in the last 100 years, but we're working off a sensational base. So, right. so uh, a relatively small amount, well, 2% growth per year, uh, which everybody deplores, in one generation will add $19,000 of GDP per capita. How, how would you like it if you were promised you know, now GDP is not the same as personal income, but it, it's 60 some percent of it, it will get translated. Uh, I mean, if, if somebody told everybody in this room that they'd have, if they had a family of four, there'd be 76,000 more in real terms, you know, and, and in one generation. I mean, it, America works incredibly. Who could have dreamt? If you had been here 241 years ago in 1776, if you'd looked around, there wasn't anything here. I mean, everything we have is pure profit. The Federal Reserve just reported that on June 30th, household wealth was 96 trillion. Now, you know, when you get up numbers like trillion, you know, the, you, you can't comprehend them or anything, but, uh, but that, that's all come 
from what you might call retained earnings of the American, what happened with Americans. There was just a bunch of land here and forests and you know, whatever it might be. And you know, look around in New York or Chicago, it may change hands, but it belongs to America, I mean, one way or another. They, they can't move the factories, they can't move the farmland, they can't, you know, all of these things. We've got 75 million owner-occupied homes in the United States. They can't, they're not going anyplace. You know, if you borrow too much on them, you may, you may lose it to some other American who, get, who financed a mortgage on it or something, but, but the houses stay. And just think of that all coming from nothing. In, 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 in three generations, you know, put me end to end three times at 87, and you're back to when Thomas Jefferson was 13 years old or something like that. But, uh, uh, I'm sure he wasn't thinking about that that way at the time. <laughs> but that's, that is just, a, in the history of the world, it, it just blows your mind that that could happen in three, three times one person's lifetime, that we go from absolutely nothing, we've got farms around here that you know, produced 30, 30 bushels an acre of corn a hundred years ago, and now they produce 150 or more. And what happens? I mean, you get tractors, you get better fertilizer, you get irrigation, all these things. We can't even name who invented irrigation or, you know, or, or uh, whatever it may be, the combine or something of the sort. And yet all of that is accruing to our benefit now, so that it takes 2% of American people to turn out all the food we need when it used to take 80%. So it's, this country really works, and it'll keep working. You know, that, that's an incredibly optimistic outlook, but there are a lot of Americans who feel like um, things are going the wrong direction in the country these days. You have a divided electorate, you have a country um, where politics is even tough to discuss, when people can't sit in the same room together. You have the hurricanes that have just hit um, all from the south all the way around to the Caribbean and above to Puerto Rico. Um, and you have North Korea. Um, no, the massive. weapons of mass destruction are another story. Okay, I mean, well, that, is, that there, is, the is, there anything, the is there anything that worries That's you That's the threat to the world. Yeah. I mean, the, the truth is that we have increased uh, the ability of, of perhaps even an individual, perhaps a group, perhaps a nation, the ability to kill millions and millions and millions of people uh, in a single stroke. And you know, if you were a psychotic back in the in the caveman age, you, you threw a rock at the guy in the next cave. You know, and that was about the damage you could do. And we went through bows and arrows and all that sort of stuff. So, the, but in 1945, in August of 1945. Uh, we made a quantum jump, unfortunately, in the ability to kill people. And uh, uh, Einstein said at that time that he says, I know not with what, what weapons World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. And uh, uh, we've now lived for 72 years under that cloud. And it's not just nuclear, it's chemical, biological, and now cyber. Uh, I don't have any solutions for that. I think we've been both lucky and, and good. I think that it was a good thing we had Kennedy and Khrushchev in charge of the U.S. and the Soviet because two different personalities uh, could have resulted in millions and millions of deaths. And, and we've now got a fellow North Korea that you've got a very poor country spending a way disproportionate amount of its GDP working on missiles that can hit California. I mean, that, you know, that is... That's crazy, uh, yeah. and uh, that I don't, 
I wish I had a solution for it, but I don't. But we, we've still gotten through 70 some years and, and who knows. We've got, we've got an economic machine though uh, that you couldn't have dreamt of. Yeah, can we go back to talking about the fun stuff? <laughs> um, let's get back to the economy. We do have a jobs report that's coming up yeah. this Friday. Um, and you have a pretty good idea of what's happening around the economy, not only from the 80-plus companies that you own at Berkshire uh, and the companies that you can kind of see the receipts coming in every day, but from the huge number of, of stocks that you also own major portions in. You, you've got a pretty good idea of what's happening. What is your guy, your best guess as to what's happening in the economy? The economy continues to grow just like it has ever since the fall of 2009. I mean, it's been a long time now in this more or less constant rate of 2% a year, which if population grows at or eight-tenths of a percent means that you get 1.2% compounded over time, but that really mounts up. But that, that is what we're seeing is 2%. It, it may vary different parts of the economy get stronger or weaker. I mean, apartments were very strong here a while back, and, and that slowed down somewhat. Uh, autos have slowed down somewhat, but other parts are accelerating. So I think, I think it's at least 2% per year in real terms that, that we're growing now. I mean, you, you look at Nebraska and Omaha, I mean, you know, this is, we're talking about 3% unemployment, which is a really close to full employment. So we should feel very good about what I, we uh, see. The, 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 the country is doing well. A lot of people that are perfectly decent citizens are not doing well. And that gets us back. And, and the racial divide is, I mean, if you go back, like I do, uh, you know, to the 1960s, I mean, it, I, I, it's been extremely disappointing in terms of the, what's happened there. I mean, I thought that, that uh, uh, I just thought we'd make a lot. When I was young, there was, in Omaha, there was strong anti-Semitism, there was anti-Catholicism, you know, I mean, those, and there was enormous, I mean, difference between women and men getting jobs, I mean, it was night and day between then and now. But the, the, the racial thing has not, Im not improved as much as, well, it ought to be leagues beyond where it is, in, in my view. That, that's, we have, as a country, we have not made the progress on that. We should have. Why do you think that is? That's, that's the great question. I, mean, the, the, I think it's going, it doesn't feel like it's, I, I think it's going the right direction. But I just think it's too ridiculously slow and, and uh, it, it uh, I, I would not, I, I heard most inspiring speech I ever heard was Martin Luther King in the fall of 1967 at Grinnell. Uh, he was killed less than six months later, but uh, uh, he, you know, he said truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne, but that scaffold sways the future. Well, it sways it, but that arc of justice really does, is very long and then slowly. Is that part of what is happening with purpose-built communities that you think is important too? It's not just about- give that one. Purpose-built communities is not about only making sure you have people from every income. It's about making sure that you are um, integrated on every scale, including racially too, correct? Yeah. It's disappointing we are more of one country. I mean, we've got prosperity, 
got a wonderful country, but, but uh, and, you know, obviously you have, you have politicians that, that play to that too. That, uh, I mean, it's, uh, it works for some of them. I'm surprised that it, I mean, over the years, it, 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 people thought a Catholic couldn't be elected president. I mean, uh, you know, after Al Smith. Uh, uh, and people really believed it, I mean, in terms of nominating conventions and all that. Uh, and it, there's still, I'm sure, some places, some anti-Catholicism, for example, but it, that, that has changed so dramatically in my lifetime. Anti-Semitism has changed dramatically in my lifetime within what I've seen and where I've lived and so on. But uh, 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 it, it's, it's discouraging on the, on the racial division. Hmm. It's better than it was, believe me, <laughs> but, but it isn't anywhere near where it should be. You think that's something that will change in the next 10, 20, 30 years? I think it'll get better. Everything has gotten better during my lifetime. I mean, that, I don't mean it's been in a straight line, but, but it does get better. We're, we're slow. I mean, look, we said, you know, all men are created equal in 1776, and, and you know, it was 1920 before uh, the 19th Amendment was, was passed, mm -hmm. and then it was from 1920 to whenever Sandra Day O'Connor, another 60 years or so, before we put a woman on the Supreme Court. And in between, I, there were 30-some appointments. The chance, it was like eight billion to one against that being by chance. <laughs> a woman didn't get on the Supreme Court for that long a period. So you're saying it is possible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kidding. kidding. But it's, we've moved in the right direction, yeah. but slowly in, in, in some areas. In terms of output, we just keep galloping. The market system really works there. I, I want to bring this back to, to purpose-built communities and, again, talk about what you think can be taken from what you've learned, not only in Atlanta and in New Orleans and now in Omaha. If there's a message that you want to give to everybody here, what is the positive message you want them to take well, out of this? Well, it's a very positive back? message. It's a, that lots of kids are going to have a dramatically better chance of living productive, successful lives uh, if they have the right conditions surrounding them at birth in terms of who they see, who their heroes are, how they live, you know, the whole thing. I mean, it's the whole life experience and those are... And, uh, so I would, my primary goal would actually be the kids in the end. I mean, it, uh, uh, you know, they don't ask to be brought into the world. They don't ask to be, it's, it's a roll of the dice. I call it the ovarian lottery in terms of uh, <laughs> how things come out. And I came, you know, in 1930, it was 40 to one against me being born in the United States. You know, I could have been born in who knows where, you know, and, and I, I wouldn't have had a chance. And it was 50-50 whether I'd be male or female, and my, my sisters did not have the same chance I had. You know, so there's so much luck of the draw, and what you want to do is reduce that luck of the draw uh, where the chances get more and more equal uh, for every baby born. It's a great message. Warren, we want to thank you very much for your time with us this afternoon. I want to thank all of you for being here, and um, just thank you for the words.
That was Warren Buffett and CNBC's Becky Quick at the Purpose Built Community's annual conference in Omaha in 2017. America's political, economic, cultural, and social systems do not work towards equity. Racism and discrimination have been codified in our institutions and they hold back communities from opportunity and hold back individuals and families from the American dream. To Mr. Buffett's point though, revitalizing a neighborhood holistically and keeping racial equity front and center can be transformational in helping people live better, healthier lives. Inequality isn't a given. Equity is achievable. It requires self-reflection, tough conversations, brave leadership, and a steadfast and informed vision. It takes time. It doesn't happen overnight, but change is happening in neighborhoods to break intergenerational poverty and move towards racial equity. It's possible and it's necessary, and we need leaders who are passionate about their communities, passionate about social justice, passionate about equity, to stand up and work to make racial equity the reality and not a utopian dream. Find helpful resources on racial equity and holistic community development at PurposeBuiltCommunities.org and connect with others around the country working towards racial equity by following Purpose Built Communities on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We'd like to thank Mr. Buffett for his leadership and support of Purpose Built Communities and for pushing philanthropy to invest more intentionally in impact and not ego. In the next season of This Is Community, We'll explore the story of the revitalization of East Lake in Atlanta, which inspired the purpose-built community's model of holistic neighborhood revitalization. I was kind of nervous. Here this big rich man with all this money, and, and he willing to come over here messing with us, and ain't nobody else been want to be bothered with us. Listen to This Is Community wherever podcasts are available or on purposebuiltcommunities.org slash podcast, where you'll find more information on the Purpose Built model and engaging sessions from our annual conferences. Presentations and videos at each of these sessions are on the website as well. This podcast is created in partnership with HL Strategy. Our executive producers are Aton Davidson, Howard Lawley, and Sherry Crawley. Our producer and editor is Brady Hummel. Mixing and mastering is by Matt Honkinen, and our music is from Pitchwire. Fine Productions recorded the conference session featured in this episode. If you like this series, be sure to subscribe and share it. I'm Alexandra Wiggins for Purpose Built Communities, and this is Community. <laughs>